Netherlands, 1944. At the height of the Nazi occupation, a man named Caspar Ten Boom and his two adult daughters, Betsy and Corrie, were operating a safe house for Jews. They'd been doing it for two years. They were a Christian family, but they risked their lives hiding Jews and other members of the Dutch underground. And over two years, the Ten Boom family saved the lives of more than 800 Jews. But on February 28, 1944, that all came to a halt. A, a Dutch man by the name of Jan Vogel came to their house asking for help. He said that the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police, had taken his wife and he begged them for help. But in reality, he was an informer. He was there on behalf of the Gestapo to spy out the house and to see if the rumours were true. Were the Ten Booms sheltering Jews? There were some Jews there that day. And so a little bit later, based on Jan Vogel's intel, the Gestapo raided the house. Um, They arrested the Ten Boom family. Um, They arrested anyone who came to the house during the day. And by evening, 30 people had been arrested. But no Jews. The Gestapo knew, based on Jan Vogel's intel, that there had been Jews there earlier in the day, and they suspected that they were hiding somewhere nearby. Uh, Maybe in a nearby building, maybe in a cellar, perhaps in the house itself. But no matter how they searched, they could not find them. Turns out that there were some Jews in the house, but they were hidden behind a secret wall at the back of Corrie Ten Boom's bedroom. In this hiding place were two Jewish men, two Jewish women, and two members of the Dutch resistance. They had no food, very little water, and it was standing room only, just about the space of your standard wardrobe. And so these six people stood silently in the dark, cramped space for 47 hours. Um, They were finally rescued by some other members of the Dutch resistance. Now, over those two days, um, Caspar, Betsy and Corrie Ten Boom were asked again and again, where are you hiding the Jews? What have you done with them? Um, But despite the pressure, they would not give up the location. They wouldn't even admit that that they'd ever had Jews in the house. Now, imagine yourself in that situation. Uh, You've been hiding illegal fugitives for two years. And finally, the game is over, you've been caught, you've been arrested, and the police ask you point blank, where are you hiding them? What do you do? Ethics is hard, isn't it? What do you do? If you say, yes, um, they're behind my bedroom wall, well then the people you've been trying to protect are going to die. If you say nothing, well then the the police are going to ask you again. And again, maybe with a fist or the point of a gun. If you lie and say no, well, that's the only way you've got to save them, isn't it? But is it okay to lie? As a Christian, is it ever okay to lie? Maybe let's just step back from this slightly extreme situation um, and just think about it as a bit bit of a more general question. As Christians, how do we feel about lying? 
Is it ever okay to lie? Now, to help us think about this question, I want to take us uh, to the, the book of Exodus, to the story that, that, um, that was read for us, uh, and where we're going to meet two Israelite midwives who were faced with a very similar situation. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, gracious Father, thank you for your word to us, um, that even though it was written so long ago, it has much to teach us. Uh, Father, please speak to us through your word tonight. And we pray that you would help us to live wisely before you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, you'll probably find it helpful to have a Bible open at Exodus chapter 1. Um, now, as, as, as you turn there, let me just remind you of the story so far. And we're kind of launching into partway through a chapter, which is a bit of a weird thing to do. Um, actually, we're launching kind of partway in the middle of a story. Um, if you know your, your Bible story well, you might remember the promises that God made to Abraham um, knowing them is critical to knowing what's going on in Exodus. So God made three promises to Abraham. Does anyone know what those three promises are? Or can anyone know one of them? We're going to look at Jez first. Uh, look, you're going to have some offspring. Some offspring, yeah. As many offspring as there are stars in the sky. Anyone know one of the other promises? No? Land, yeah. God will give them a land to call their own, the land of Canaan. And the third one, the most important one. Blessing, yeah. That through the family of Abraham, God was going to bless the world. Now, as the book of Exodus opens, it, it becomes pretty clear that God has kept the first one of these promises. Um, the descendants of Abraham moved to Egypt, 70 in all, but over 400 years they became an uncountable multitude. Uh, they were kind of like a plague on the land of Egypt, if you like. Um, but then a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph who did not know the good that the Israelites had done for his nation. And so he was scared of them. And he tried to stop the promises of God. He enslaved the people of Israel. That was his first plan. He put them to work in chain gangs. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The king of Egypt's plan came to nothing because God was determined to keep his promises to Abraham. God would make the people of Israel as many as the stars in the sky. And through them, God was determined to bless all peoples in the world. And there's nothing the king of Egypt could do to stop it. But that didn't keep him from trying. Uh, his first plan failed, and so he moved on to a second plan. Uh, the Egyptians were ruthless and worked the Israelites to the bone. Um, hard labour hadn't been enough, so they made their lives bitter with bricks and labour and all kinds of work in the field. But that didn't work either. And so Pharaoh moved on to his third plan. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe them on the delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it, is a, if it is a girl, let her live. This is his third plan. Kill the baby boys. It's a tactic designed to breed out the Israelites. If he can deplete the male population over a couple of decades, well, over time, that's going to force Israelite women to marry Egyptian men because that's the only option they've got. And pretty quickly, that means no more Israelite families. Um, no more families means no more Israelite community. It means no more Israelite identity. 
It means that the population of Egypt becomes ethnically integrated, um, one people group, not two. Uh, and it even means that the pharaoh doesn't have to take a dip in population numbers to achieve it. He gets to keep the massive workforce that these Israelite slaves represent while reshaping the ethnic identity of his country. This is nasty, though, because what he's doing is he's willing to sanction the murder of children for the sake of politics, for, for the sake of the economy. But it gets worse than that, because look at who he recruits to do the dirty deed. It's the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. These are the women who are supposed to care for newborn babies. Pharaoh orders them to start murdering newborn boys. It's a devious plot. Because if you get the midwife to do it, it could almost seem like an accident. It could almost seem like the baby was stillborn. Mom is senseless from the pain. Uh, Dad is out of the room. I know that's not how you guys did it, but um, in those days, men were not around as babies were born. It just wasn't done. And there are all sorts of things that can go wrong in childbirth. They do all the time. And it's easy. would be so easy for a midwife to get away with it, wouldn't it? It could all just seem like an accident, a tragedy. At least Pharaoh's plan one and plan two were honest and straightforward. But this, this is disgusting. This is cruel. This king is putting children on the front line of his political power struggle. He's trying to defeat his enemies by murdering their children. In the face of extreme evil, what are these women going to do? Will they buckle? Will they do as they're told? Or will they find a way to stand up under the pressure? Well, heroically, the midwives refuse. Have a look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. These women are heroes. They risked their lives. It's pretty clear from the story so far that this king of Egypt has no regard for human life. He's happy to enslave an entire ethnic group. He's happy to to order the murder of newborn baby children. If he finds out that these two midwives have defied him, well, at the very least, he's going to remove them from their job. He's probably going to kill them. And then he'll put someone else in to do the job. He'll do what they're told. But these women feared God, and so they were willing to risk their lives. Uh, They disobeyed Pharaoh's direct order, and in fact, they actually did the direct opposite. Um, Quite literally, it says, they kept the boys alive. Pharaoh said put them to death, but they kept them alive. They did all the things that a midwife should normally do to keep a newborn alive. They put their lives on the line by directly defying Pharaoh. And in the very next verse, we see them hauled before the king to answer. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you kept the boys alive? That's a tense moment, isn't it? He holds them responsible. There hasn't been a string of tragic stillbirths among the Israelite community. You can almost imagine... The chill in the room as Pharaoh waits for them to answer. And they do. The Hebrew women 
are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife can arrive. I'm really glad that you guys laughed at that when it was being read before. Because it's funny. It's hilarious. It can't possibly be true. And they've, they've, they've made an excuse... And they've delivered a backhand insult to Egyptian women at the same time. Um, they've insulted Egyptian women as, as weak uh, and not able to give birth in a hurry. Uh, and they've also made a, what sounds on the face of it a little bit like a plausible excuse. Actually, it's kind of a weird excuse, isn't it? Can it really be possible that every Hebrew mother would give birth before the baby was born? Sorry, that doesn't make any sense. Could it, could it really be that the, midwife, that the mother would give birth before the midwife arrived? doesn't make any sense. Um, it can't possibly be true. Okay, some of the babies would be born before the midwives arrive. Maybe the midwives could manage to waste some time and get there a bit late, just in case it was a boy, so that they wouldn't have to do it. But they wouldn't be able to do that in every single case. These women have lied to the Pharaoh. And yet Pharaoh buys it. He doesn't say anything in response. He doesn't contradict them. He doesn't accuse them of lying. He doesn't punish them. He does nothing. Have a look at the outcome of of Pharaoh's plan 3. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. The king's initial fear was that there were too many Israelites. Well, guess what, Pharaoh? There are even more Israelites now. Um, Everything he's tried to decrease the population numbers has had the exact opposite effect. Um, The more he tries to suppress them, the more they spring up and grow because God is determined to keep his promises. He has promised that he will make the Israelites as many as the sand on the seashore. And there's nothing the king of Egypt can do to stop it. But there's something else here that's a bit strange. Shifra and Pua have lied to the king. There's no way that their excuse could be true. They flat out lied. Now, that's not the strange thing, though. Uh, I mean, as we read the Bible, we find quite commonly people doing things that are bad. And we find people doing wrong things. It's one of the things that convinces me that the Bible is true. Um, as I read, about, read the stories about the people, they, they feel like real people. They do the kinds of things that real people do. I, I hear people lie to me all the time. It's a normal thing to do. The Bible tells me that people will sin, and they do. And for me, that, that's a, a powerful proof of the truth of the Bible. It describes the real world. Now, the strange thing here is not that the women have lied. It's what God says in response. God commends these women. Look again at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. Or verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. These heroic midwives are blessed by God. And given families of their own. This is a clear commendation of them. Add to that, we know their names. Their names are Shifra and Pua, two heroic midwives. Compare that to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Who is he? We don't know. He is nameless. The book of Exodus never names him. He is nobody. But these two women, Shifra, Pua, two faithful, godly women who would not allow evil, 
They didn't just refuse to participate, they risked their lives to ensure that no one else could, could commit the evil either. Now this story of two heroic women who told a bald-faced lie and commended by God, I find it pretty unsettling. Um, the fact that God commends them tells me that sometimes a lie can be justified. Actually, it's more than that. It tells me that sometimes a lie is good. That's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? God blessed them for it. He gave them families of their own. Their names are recorded in his book for eternity. A pair of liars. I find this unsettling. Ethics is hard. I want ethics to be black and white. I want rules to be simple. I want things to be objectively right or wrong. Don't give me any of this grey business. But the Bible won't have a bar of that. It's absolutely clear as we read the Bible that God wants his people to be truthful. Um, Think about the Ten Commandments that Stu read to us before. The Ninth Commandment, which I think Roger's got on the screen for us. There we go. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Okay, that, maybe you could limit that to a judicial proceeding. You know, don't give false witness against your neighbour in court. Okay, well, how about this one? Next one. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. There's not a lot of wiggle room there, is there? Uh, or a New Testament example. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Lies belong to our old nature, the nature that was put to death with Christ on the cross. We've been raised to new life with Christ, and truthfulness is the character of our new nature. It's absolutely clear that God wants his people to be truthful. He wants us to speak the truth. But I think it's equally clear from this story in Exodus that there are some situations where a lie is good. God is kind to these women. He rewards them. Ethics is hard, isn't it? So what gives? What is it that makes this lie not just okay, but good? Well, there's a concept in Christian ethics uh, that's known as a retrieval ethic. Um, I find it a really helpful concept. Um, Retrieval ethics begins by recognising that our world is broken by sin. Um, And sin affects us and our world and our lives at all sorts of levels. And so it means we find ourselves in situations that are less than ideal. Things in life just aren't how they should be some of the time. And sometimes you encounter a situation that is so badly messed up by sin... That there's no good choices left. You can choose bad, worse, or dreadful. A retrieval ethic tries to work out, is there anything good that we can retrieve out of this dreadful situation? And now I think these midwives were in a situation like that. Option one, they could do as they're told and participate in the murder of innocence. That's bad, isn't it? Option two, they can refuse point blank to Pharaoh 
in which case they'll probably be executed and someone else will be brought in to do the job and so the babies will get murdered as well. So that's bad too. Um, or option three, they could lie. That's bad. They've got three bad options. Ethics is hard. There's no good outcome in this situation. Committing murder is not good. Losing your life and letting someone else commit murder is not good. Lying is not good. These women had no good option. Their choice was between bad, worse and dreadful. (coughs) Lying wasn't good. But in this situation, it was better than the alternative. It was the best possible outcome in the situation. It was the only way to retrieve something good. Is lying always wrong? Well, given that God commends these two lying midwives, I think we're forced to say, no, lying is not always wrong. However, and I think this is a very big however, the story, this story amplifies for us the importance of truth-telling. Um, the fact that it was okay for these women to tell a lie in this extreme situation, for me, heightens the importance of speaking the truth. Think about the kinds of lies that people usually tell. Um, think about the kinds of lies that you're tempted to tell. Lies are almost always for the good of the liar. We lie to make ourselves look good. We lie to get ourselves out of trouble. We lie to bring about a good end for ourselves. Lies are almost always for the good of the liar. I reckon probably in 99.99999% of occasions, a lie is good for the liar. We lie for selfish reasons. What kind of situation do you have to be in that a lie becomes morally thinkable? It's going to be pretty extreme, isn't it? It's going to be pretty on the edge. Did Corrie ten Boom do the wrong thing when she lied about the Jews hiding behind the secret wall in her bedroom? Well, the Queen of the Netherlands didn't think so. Corrie ten Boom was knighted by the Queen of the Netherlands after the war was over. Um, The Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem didn't think she'd done the wrong thing either. They invited Corrie ten Boom to plant a tree in the avenue of the righteous Gentiles. They call her righteous. She was a liar. What kind of situation do you have to be in that a lie becomes morally good? It's not an easy question, is it? Ethics is hard. Is it ever okay to lie? I don't have a simple answer to that question because there isn't one. I wish morality was simple. I wish there were easy formulas to follow. But this question, it can feel a bit academic, can't it? Um, As you start to think about the kinds of situations in which a lie is going to be okay, they're really extreme. They're going to be on the absolute edges of life. It's not going to come up very often, if ever, in your normal life. But what this does for us is it actually scratches the surface of a much bigger question. What kind of people does God want us to be? Does he want us to be rule keepers? Or or does he expect more from his children than that? Have a look at Romans 12 verse 2. No, there it is. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then 
you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. That's interesting, isn't it? Test and approve what God's will is. See, God desires his people to have renewed minds. He wants us to become wise, moral agents who know God, who know his heart, and who are discerning in how we act. God doesn't want a bunch of legalistic rule keepers who do as they're told. That's who the Pharisees were. Rule keepers. Now, don't get me wrong, rules and laws are very, very helpful. But their primary purpose is to kickstart our moral faculties, to restrain immoral action in ordinary situations so that we can gain enough wisdom, enough knowledge of God to understand the reasons behind the rules and know how to act. Take my one-year-old daughter Beatrix as an example. We have a rule in our house. Beatrix, you can't go on the road unless you're holding hands with an adult. It's a pretty obvious rule, isn't it? You get why that's a good idea. Beatrix doesn't. She thinks it's dumb. Now, she'll get it soon. It won't take long. Um, Rules are like that. They're they're a shortcut to wise moral behaviour. They're a bunch of worked examples in specific situations that help us know how to act. Now, that doesn't mean we can, all, we can just jettison the rules once we grow up and once we feel that we're mature, but it does mean that we can recognise that the rules don't always apply. Now, there are some situations that just go beyond what the rules are designed to deal with. That's frustrating, isn't it? It's complex. It'd be so nice if ethics could be simple and black and white, but God doesn't want infants. He doesn't want babies who need to be told what to do. God wants us to grow up into adult sons and daughters who know his mind, who know his heart, and who want to live his way. He wants us to be responsible moral agents in his world, to know him well enough that we can work out what he would have us do without being told. Is it ever okay to lie? Well, Shifra and Puah chose to break the rules. They chose to lie, not for selfish reasons, but to save the lives of hundreds and hundreds of Israelite babies. Is it ever okay to lie? I'll leave you to think about that. Let's return to the big story. God is determined to keep his promises. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the sand on the shore and nothing Pharaoh could do could stop God's promises. Everything Pharaoh tried, God's promises just continued to come true. The number of Israelites continued to grow. But of course, that didn't stop the Pharaoh. He moved quickly on to his fourth plan. The last verse of our chapter, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Secrecy failed, and so Pharaoh enlisted all of Egypt in his plan. He enlisted all his people to begin murdering Israelite boys. Throw them to the crocodiles. Some people never learn. Everything he's tried so far to stop God's promises has had the exact opposite effect. Why does he think this is going to be any different? Spoiler alert, 
This ends with an Israelite man living in his palace as his adopted grandson. It's an utter failure. Um, Now to finish, let's think for a moment about how this story points us to the gospel of Jesus. Um, Because in many ways, the book of Exodus is a paradigm for the life of Jesus. Uh, The Exodus event was God's great salvation that that he used to establish his old covenant people. Um, And the Jesus event, the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, was God's great salvation by which he established his new covenant people. Uh, the two stories mirror each other in so many ways. Here in this chapter, for example, we've met a king, a king who is not interested in God or his promises or his ways. And this king will do anything to hold on to power. He will even stoop to murdering children. He reminds me of another king. A king desperate to hold on to power. His name was Herod, king of the Jews. When Herod heard that a new king of the Jews had been born, well, he sent some spies to go and seek him out and report. Some wise men. Herod wanted, he said, he told them that he wanted to worship this new king of the Jews. Herod was lying. And it was not the good kind of lie. Herod wasn't seeking to protect the lives of innocents. He wasn't in an extreme situation where his only options were bad, worse or terrible. No, Herod was looking out for himself. He was planning to kill God's one and only son. He was freely choosing evil. But just like Pharaoh, Herod could not stop God's plans or promises God used an angel in a dream to send the wise men home by another road. And when Herod finally realised they weren't coming back, well, he didn't learn. He sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to start executing all the boys two years old and younger. Mass slaughter to try and get the one. He was a wicked king. He cared only about himself, but he could not stop God's plan to bless the world through the ultimate descendant of Abraham. God sent Joseph, Jesus' father, a warning in a dream. And so Joseph took his baby son, um, he took his wife, and they fled to Egypt until the threat had passed. And so just as with the Exodus where God brought Israel, his firstborn son, up out of Egypt, so too God would bring Jesus, his one and only son, up out of Egypt. And the story of Exodus reminds us again and again of Jesus. God had promised to bless the whole world with the forgiveness of sins. And there's nothing that anyone could do to stop him from keeping his promise. God sent his son into the world that people from every tribe and language and nation might be blessed with the forgiveness of sin. And we can see the fruit of that here tonight, can't we? Just look around the room. More than that, Jesus will come again. He will dwell with us. He will gather his people. We will be his people. And he will be our God. And as we wait for that day, as we muddle along through the mess of life, as we're faced with situations that are less than ideal, when we find ourselves left with no good choices, just bad, worse or terrible, chances are we're going to get it wrong. Ethics is hard. 
And we're going to make wrong choices, maybe seriously wrong ones. Maybe you have today. We'll take comfort that the Lord Jesus came to deal with the sinful mess of our world, the sinful mess of our wrong choices, the sinful mess of our hearts. Jesus came to bless us with the forgiveness of sins. And there's nothing that anyone can do to stop him. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death and his resurrection. And we thank you that on the cross, he faced the punishment for sin that we deserve. Gracious Father, please, by your Son, give us renewed minds that we might know your heart, that we might know your will, and that we might know how to act. Please, Lord, cause us to grow up into Jesus, our head, and to be mature men and women, your children who know you and love you and want to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.